Welcome to the final week of our series on sanctity. And to start things off, sorry, I have to set this up. To start things off, um, what I want to do is um, get something out of your mind that might be in your mind. Um, when I talk to American Christians about marriage, there's something that consistently comes up that I want to just kind of get at. I want to get at it by asking a question. You guys all ready? Are we awake this morning? We're good? Yep. All right, good. Here's the question. Who has jurisdiction over marriage? Who has jurisdiction over marriage? Now, the answer that many people intuitively feel, we may not say it, but we feel this or we live this way, is that we think government has the final authority over what marriage is or is not. Um, but Ville Church, who has the jurisdiction to clarify, expand, or redefine marriage? It's God. And that's it. Period. It does not matter what person, organization, or government, what group of people tell me what marriage is or is not. What matters most is very simply this. What does God say this is? I want to illustrate this for you with a cr incredibly ludicrous example. You ready? All right. So I want you to imagine um, Congress passes a bill, and in this bill they state that Michael Fueling is no longer to be a male. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a man. Um, I'm told that I am somewhere on the masculine expression of gender. That's at least what I'm told. Somebody might be lying. But, so I want you to imagine that um, government comes in and they say, no longer, Michael, we have um, decreed that you will be a woman. Your new name will be Michelle. I'm going to give myself a new last name because I can. Michelle Garces. That's my new name, okay? <laughs> and uh, they have um, declared that I must go through a sex change operation as well as extensive hormone therapy and have also decreed by law that I must dress as a woman, grow my hair long and wear dresses and get manicures and pedicures and all the other things that um, apparently girls do. So um, now some of you guys are like, I like manicures, I like pedicures, but you're not raising your hands right now. So now if you were to take my blood and somebody was to look at it, would my DNA say male or female? Male. Because it does not matter what people do or how they try to reassign my identity, you cannot change my essence. When I stand before God, will I stand before God as a transgendered female who in the eyes of the government and everybody, will I stand before God as Michel Garces or Michael Fueling the man? Michael fueling the man a hundred times over. I want you to imagine another scenario with me. Um, a little ludicrous, but the government decides that this chimpanzee will be given um, personhood in the eyes of the law. So now it'll be treated as a human with all of the civil rights that a human being in the eyes of the law would deserve. Now he's under the poverty level, so he gets free health care and government assistance. It's going to be really great. He's happy as a clam. He even gets married to another chimpanzee, and this chimpanzee marriage is actually legally declared as a marriage in the eyes of the government. Now this chimpanzee dies, and this chimpanzee stands before God. Does this chimpanzee stand as a human or as a chimpanzee? We're going to go chimpanzee every time because it does not matter what the government says. If the government disagrees with God, who wins? 
God every single time. I want you to get that. I think sometimes we live in, a, in this country and we think, oh no, what's God going to do? There's an assault on the biblical definition of marriage or, or uh, God must be up there just thinking, oh, how am I going to get this changed? These people's hearts are just so hard. Is God panicking at what's happening to, we'll call it the definition of marriage in American culture? No, God is sovereign and in control and honestly sometimes gives us over to our sin and lets us reap what we sow. That's sometimes what he does. Now I want to give you a third scenario. I want you to imagine that a man legally marries two women. And in the eyes of the government, this is a marriage. And this marriage eventually dissolves through divorce legally. When this man and these women stand before God, will God recognize this as a marriage. No, because fundamentally, that's not what marriage is. Now, some of you are thinking, Michael, are you going to get all political this morning? Is this going to get like Republican and Democrat? No, actually, we're going to dig right deep into the Bible. But the reason I have to say this is because you need to get a category out of your mind that somehow, if the majority of Americans and the United States government declares something to be true, that it must therefore be true. But every single um, bureaucrat will stand before God. Now, here's the deal. God has jurisdiction over marriage. And every time humans have entered into God's jurisdiction, redefined what is sacred to God, has it gone well for us? Let's go back in time. We've addressed some of this in these past sermons, but um, when the American government decided that um, a black person or an African-American is not fully a person in the eyes of the law, how did that go for us? Probably not too well. Um, and then how, how did it go for us when in the early 70s, uh, the American government decided that um, a baby in its mother's womb is not a full person? How did that go for us? Not very well. In fact, whenever the government intrudes upon something that God has explicitly defined and has jurisdiction over, typically immorality and heartache and trouble very quickly ensue. And so here's what I want you to understand. Some of you are not Christians, and we are so glad that you're here. And my goal is not to convince you or to change your mind um, at all. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to disagree with me. Um, I want to invite you to come have a fun conversation with me afterwards. We can arm wrestle. It'll be really great. Uh, we can spar a little bit. Just be nice. And, uh, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to empathize with Christians. Um, there are these straw man arguments that are, 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 we are caricatured as being extreme for reasons that honestly are not even close to our hearts. And what I want to encourage you this morning to do is I want you to understand what makes a Christian tick when we talk about marriage. Why do we keep saying, no, a marriage is between a man and a woman? Is it because we, quote, hate homosexuals? No, if there's any Christian in this room who hates somebody based on their gender or preference or personal expression, you have huge issues that are bigger than anything we're going to tackle this morning. Right? If there is any kind of hate or anger um, motivating the Christian to take any kind of stand, we're missing the whole point here. Um, and at the end of the day, we are for a simple definition of marriage, not because it's a political issue, but because the Bible teaches what it is. This is a very special personal area to God that we'll see. He has jurisdiction over it. And I don't know about you, I'm not really interested in entering into his jurisdiction, disagreeing with God, and then having to stand before him. Anybody else want to stand before God after disagreeing with him on something so personal to him? No. And so I hope at the very, at the very least, what you'll be able to see 
see is our heartbeat for this rather than the crazy caricatures that are painted of Christians. And I know that when we see these caricatures on the news, I get really frustrated because the caricature that's painted, that's not my heart. My heart is to please God, to bring him glory, and to see humanity flourish for the glory of God. That's my heartbeat. And I hope that you guys see that. So if you look down, if you'd open your notes with me, I want to get that off the table so we can really get deep down into what the Bible says um, about marriage. Um, Take out your notes with me, and your notes are broken up into three sections, creation, fall, redemption. I want to start with creation, and it says this, what is God's intention for marriage? What is God's intention for marriage? And I want to give you the intention. Uh, God created marriage with the following intention. To project his image and likeness through a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. That God has given marriage to project his image and his likeness through a lifelong covenant or faithful promise to till death do you part between a man and a woman. Why is the issue of the definition of marriage so personal to God? Because God, when he made marriage, he made it with the intention that every couple who comes together in marriage would show forth what God is like. So that when every couple in this room leaves here and you go out into this world, here's what God wants for you. God wants people to look at your marriage and to say the following, so that's what God's like? That's how God loves? Whoa, like we want people to see in our marriages an image of who God is, that they say, how could I not worship a God who is as gracious and loving and sacrificial and servant-hearted as that, right? And so, Ville Church, there is so much at stake in every marriage in this room. If you're single and you're sitting here thinking, I don't have any intention to be married, why am I here? You care about marriage. I'm going to tell you why. Because God cares about marriage, and we care about what God cares about. Singles, you can give me an amen on that. Amen? Okay, we care because God cares. Husbands and wives, every marriage in this room is precious to God and is valuable because God has allowed you to come together to project his image and likeness for all of creation, Christians and non-Christians. The gospel and the image of God is at stake in your marriage. Now, let's, let's get real for a moment. Has anybody in this room figured out how to perfectly express the gospel in your marriage? If you raise your hand, I want to invite you to walk out the doors and leave because there's nothing left for you this morning, right? There's a fundamental assumption here, which is that we are broken, every one of us. And so here's what God does. This is what happens. God takes a broken man, a broken woman, he puts them into a broken relationship, and what happens? Brokenness. And then Jesus enters in and says, here's what's going to happen. Every year, I want you to look back. And you're going to say the following, God willing, I am a better lover of my wife today than I was a year ago. And my wife, God willing, will be able to look back and say, I'm a better lover of my husband today than I was a year ago. So that every day, year after year after year, as our relationship grows, as anniversaries come and go, when we look back, we say, I am not the same person I was a year ago or 10 years ago. I love this statement. Um, I tell people all the time, if I could go back and meet myself five years ago, I would hit myself in the face, right? Anybody else want to do that? Right? Not, no, not to me, not to me, to you, if you could meet you. Some of you are like, if I could come up there right now and hit you in the face, that's what I would do. No, that's not the point. 
Like, there's this sense that I look back and I hope my wife says, I much prefer being married to Michael today than I do Michael five years ago, okay? Now, we had our 11th anniversary yesterday, and I like to think that we are pre-adolescent in our marriage, right? So we're about to hit puberty, so pray for us. It's going to get real weird very soon here. Um, But my hope is that as we look back every year, we can say, you know what? Like, here are the things that God has done in my heart. And she can look back and say, here are the things that God has done in my heart. So that we will never perfectly display the image of God, but every year, closer and closer and closer. That's why I want to give you hope. Don't get lost in the vision and how big it is. Begin the trajectory. And this is a deeply, deeply personal issue for God. Now, the nature of God, we're projecting his nature, his likeness, his image. The nature of God is Trinity, which means there's how many gods? One God expressed in how many persons? Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. And fundamentally, the nature, the image, the likeness of God, the Trinity, is very simple. It is a unified community of sacrifice, hierarchy, and mutual submission. So we need to catch this. There's actually hierarchy in the Trinity. So who's the leader of the Trinity? Somebody help me out here. God the... Father, okay? And then under the authority, the headship, the leadership of God the Father is God the Son, who is Jesus. You can see this is so easy. You guys are like doctrinal PhD students. I love this, right? And so here's what happens. Imagine a scenario where God the Father steps back and he says, "Um, Jesus, you're the Son. Go die on the cross for the sins of humanity. He says, happily, I'll do whatever you say because everything you tell me to do is for the good of me and all of humanity, our children whom you love. And then he says to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I want you to go and help people and comfort them and encourage them. And then Jesus says, Holy Spirit, I need you to go over here. And Jesus and the Father, they're unified. They're one. They're always on the same page. And the Spirit says, I am so threatened. I want to be in leadership. You always get your way. How come you never do what I want to do? I wanted to die on the cross for their sins. I wanted all the glory, right? Does that happen? No, is any member of the Trinity threatened by anyone else's leadership over them? No, they in fact live in perfect, joyful, beautiful, glorious, fun community. Like if we could go hang out with the Trinity, it would be the greatest party that ever existed. We would be like, that was an absolute blast. Like I didn't think anybody could have more fun than the Trinity has. And so we step back and God says, I am one, I am Trinity, one God, three persons in sacrificial, hierarchical, submissive, mutually submissive community. And we are as happy as could possibly be. Now humans, you are made in our image and likeness. Now mirror our oneness. Mirror this. Now let me break it all down for you and then we'll get into our notes in the text. Um, If I could define for you what God wants to grow in your marriage, I'm going to give you one word and it's oneness. That's what God wants to grow. The Hebrew word is ekad. I love this word. I could try doing the the Jewish version, but it's never going to work. I get the wrong uh, gurgle sound. So um, that being said though, the word is oneness, a cod. It means sexual, emotional, relational, experiential, psychological, spiritual unity, okay? That's what God wants. And I wanna give you four categories that you can use to um, evaluate your own marriages and also categories where you can begin to grow in these. Now, the last three weeks, we haven't shied away from being offensive or controversial, hopefully not unnecessarily. But um, so today we're going to kind of get in some murky water and I hope that you guys will enjoy that. It'll be fun. So in marriage, look at your notes. God intended for a man and a woman to grow in oneness, to project his image, his likeness in four ways. Number one, as 
friends. Now there's a question there for you next to your notes um, that I'd love for you to really truly ask yourself. Do we, my spouse and I, have a loyal, loving, and enjoyable friendship? Now already I've lost some of you. I'm not kidding. Like already some of you are like, this is not possible. You don't know the person I'm married to. And let me just tell you this, the image and the likeness, the oneness of God will not be projected as beautifully as it could be in your marriage if you do not have a base foundation of intimate, loyal, loving, enjoyable friendship. I mean, God is community and he is love and there's an enjoyment amongst each other. And when our friendship as husband and wife is, is lived out, people see that and they start, they start to get a glimpse of the unity, the oneness of God. Genesis 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And every dude in the room, say amen. 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 I don't care who you are, male or female, it's hard being alone. Very few people being single for the duration of their lives or for any portion of their lives said singleness was easy and fun, right? It's hard that there's something inside of us that's good and right that God has made for us to want this kind of companionship. Yet in a fallen world, God has called some people to singleness. But there is a death with that. There is a a unique um, difficulty in that calling. And their community is found largely with Christians and close friends in the context of the local church. And that's where they are no longer alone. But for the man, here's what happens. When a dude is alone for too long, what do we do? Stupid things. Stupid things, right? And so that God preserves us from our idiocy by giving us a beautiful bride. Like, I gotta tell you, I would not be a pastor if I was not married. I think God has used my wife to spare me from more of my own stupidity than anything else. And she's gonna say, amen. (laughs) You can say it's fine. Uh, But like many a man are in the same boat and there's something beautiful about this. But then God says, you know what? For Adam to be alone, he needs a friend. He needs a helper. He needs somebody to be with him. Just life. This is, this is different than just sex. This is just friendship. I love in the, in the book Song of Solomon. Don't worry, we're not going to get too intimate like last week, but I'll read you one verse from 5.16. She's talking about making out with him, and, and uh, he sa- she says, His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable, like she wants him. But then here's what she says. This is my beloved, the one that I love, and this is my friend. I mean, she steps back and the basis of a beautiful, intimate sexual relationship, the basis of this marriage is that they are friends. And so um, married people in this room, I know some of you are not exactly stoked about the person you're married to. And my prayer for you is that this next year would be a year where you start to grow in your oneness as friends, loyal, loving, enjoyable. And that actually, you know what's gonna happen when this friendship begins? your kids will see it and they'll say, huh. And then it will bring healing to them because do you know what happens in a marriage where mom and dad aren't friends? There is incredible pain in the kids. And so there's so much at stake, but you know what I do? I don't pursue my wife for my kid's sake at the end of the day, that's just a blessing. I don't pursue my wife even at the end of the day because she's a lot of fun to be around. I pursue my wife because in pursuing her, I am projecting the image of God for everybody to see. Number two. Gardeners. What do you mean, Mike? Here's the question. Are we going in God's direction on the same road? 
Are we going in God's direction on the same road? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And verse 18 says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So a healthy marriage is gonna revolve around two things, okay? And I want you to catch this. We're gonna see shared calling, complementary roles. Let's go to this shared calling. And I wanna unpack this for you a little bit. And I think what's gonna happen is some of you who are engaged or married, or you look back to why you got married, this is gonna blow up the motives that you had to get married. Because for most people, we wanted to get married. Why? Because we wanted to be happy. We wanted to be happy. And let me tell you this, at the end of the day, happiness is not a primary motive that brings God glory and projects the image of Christ to a lost world in our marriage. If the motive of your marriage is happiness, what happens when happiness fades? Right? We give up, we walk away, we lose our oneness together, we start to part ways slowly, sometimes quickly. But at the end of the day, here's what I want you to understand, that God gave Adam and Eve a mission. What was that mission? To garden, to take care of this land. That was their job. And so he did not just make Eve so Adam could just be happy and lucky and everything's fun and we're having a blast. God gave Eve to Adam to help him achieve God's mission for their life. Here's my fundamental assumption about every marriage period is that your marriage is not ultimately about you and your spouse losing each other, each other in each other's eyes and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, you're so wonderful, and that's all it's about. The fundamental purpose that God has brought you together is to fulfill his mission. Do you get that? So you are not just face-to-face, but you are side-to-side. You have a common mission that is given to you by God for God's glory. So here's the deal. We look at a lot of ladies and we say this, um, don't follow a guy who has no clear sense of where God is leading him. Okay? Like there should be a sense in which the guy, if he's going to get married to a woman, says, here's where we're going to go with God. Here's what God has called us to. Guys, don't marry a woman who does not want to come alongside of you and help you in the mission that God is going to give you and your spouse as a couple. Fundamental to getting married. I want to ask this question of the person I'm going to get married to. Will they help me accomplish God's mission? Will they help me accomplish God's mission? Okay. Um, can we be friends? And will they help me accomplish God's mission? These are two of the fundamental questions that if you're dating somebody, thinking about dating somebody, engaged to somebody, you gotta get down and dirty and say, are we friends? Because if you're not, you're gonna be in big trouble. And are we going in the same direction on the same road? Are we in this? Because we have a shared value and desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ lifted up and glorified. Do we? And if you don't, you will not, hear me, project God's image and likeness as gardeners in your marriage. And so that's the first aspect is you need to have a shared calling. The second thing is complementary roles. I just, I like mixing things up. Let's get a little controversial here. Um, We, in our marriage counseling, whenever I get to the role part of it, I'll tell couples this. You will fight over money. You will fight over communication. You will fight over sex. This is where you'll get divorced. This this is what it comes down to. If you don't agree and come to the same page on this, your toast. This, this, to me, is one of the most important discussions that we can possibly have in a marriage. And sin has devastated our understanding of roles and what it means to be masculine and feminine in the context of marriage. <clears throat> so here's what I want to do with you. I want to um, uncover this a little bit. I want to get deep down and dirty, and I want to give you some things to think about. 
There's a frustration I have around this topic, okay? And the frustration is that so many of us are prone to spew out cultural mantras, right? The problem with these cultural mantras is that they're not consistent, logical, or true. And so I want to share with you um, uh, a mantra, if you will, through the back door. So the mantra is this. Um, in marriage, we are equal, which is true, and no one is the leader. There could be no leader in marriage because if there is a leader, then that automatically means that there is oppression, okay? Um, we are equal. Nobody's in charge. We're if you have a disagreement and an impasse, how do you resolve the impasse? We we'll just work on it until we come to the same conclusion. Well, let me tell you, right? <laughs> it's not that easy. Um, so here's why this frustrates me. Because if you, pardon my um, bluntness, if you think for a moment at about any institution or organization that has any health in any way, shape, or form, what do they all have in common? A point leader. Let me illustrate. Every team has a coach. Every business has a CEO. Every project needs to have a project leader. Or what happens? Nothing. Every school has a principal. Every class needs a teacher. Every country has a chief leader. Every committee has a chair. Every pack of dogs has an alpha. Every church needs elders. Every home also needs a leader. Let's even make this bigger. Even the Godhead itself needs a leader. Needs a leader. Everything in this entire world that we look at, that we engage in, has leadership, point leadership, built into the very system. And what happens when point leadership is not in your organization that you work for? What happens? It crumbles. We are prone to relational entropy and organizational entropy. Everything tends towards chaos unless there is a leader with vision responsible and given the authority to actually enforce and engage that vision. Everything in the world tends towards chaos, especially organizations. Now, we step back in the world. Would you go work for a school that had no core leader and no principal? No. Would you go work for a business where there was no one in charge, everybody was equal? No. Right? Would you go play for a sports team that there was no coach and nobody had the final say? No. And yet we get to the institution of marriage, the most powerful, important institution on planet Earth, and we say, no, no leadership, none. We will not permit this. This is oppressive. It's not logical. Do you understand that? It's not logical. And that's where I want you to suspend all of your cultural influence. I want you to suspend all of your political ideologies and just step back and say, is it logical? that I fight for leadership everywhere in my life. I demand it until I get into the marriage, into the home. Then I refuse to submit to it or to accept it. It doesn't make sense. And so I think God in his infinite genius models marriage by modeling it for, him, for us by himself. He says, I am hierarchy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Marriage, the most important institution on planet Earth, is there to reflect my image and my likeness. Now, um, does the Holy Spirit ever get upset that he's not in charge? No. Does Jesus ever want to be God the Father? No, not at all. I want to read to you a passage of scripture, and then I want to explain it, because it is one of the most inappropriately used passages of scripture, period. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head, which he means authority, that's all he means, it's very simple. A lot of people try to redefine this word. There's no redefinitions, it just means authority. Always has. Um, I want you to understand that the authority, the head of every man is Christ. So every single man, who's your authority? Christ. 
The head of a wife, the authority of a wife, is her husband. And everybody throws tomatoes and stones and kills me. Wait, just wait, hold on. Then it goes on, and God's like, I know some of you may not like this, so it's in the Bible. Let me just go a little deeper with you. And the head of Christ is who? God, meaning God the Father. So let me illustrate for you how this actually is supposed to look, okay? God the Father um, is not like the men in your life. Um, He does not pervert and twist leadership so that leadership is oppressive and controlling and is there to get what it wants, right? God the Father is perfect and flawless, and he is loving. So he steps back, and he looks at his son, Jesus, and he is the head, the authority over Jesus, and this is what leadership is. Leadership is sacrifice. You catch this? That's leadership. So here's what he does. I will make only decisions that are the best for my son, Jesus. Whatever is the best, whatever will bring you the most joy, whatever will help you fulfill the mission and the role and responsibility that you have, I will only pursue your joy and your happiness and your holiness. And so Jesus is modeled the sacrificial leader. And so Jesus says, okay, I have leadership over the man. Now, is this oppression, right? No. So Jesus says, I will die for you. I will do whatever it takes to give you what you need to be the man that God has called you to be. I will lead you. I will die. I will sacrifice. I will give my best for you. And Jesus does this. He models his leadership over us, his headship over us by loving sacrifice, even to the point of death. So now man comes along and man says, I'm the leader. Woman, make me a sandwich now. Is that leadership? No. That is sin and oppression. Here's leadership. The man says, I have been modeled and given more than I could ever possibly imagine. I have been modeled beautiful sacrificial love. So here's what headship is. Here's what authority is. Here's what leadership is. You're my wife. I am here to die for you. My objective in being your husband is to pursue your joy, your happiness, and your holiness. Everything I do will be for those three things for your benefit from this day out. I am committing with all of my soul to loving you, dying for you, putting aside my hobbies for you, putting aside my wants for you, my desires for you, whatever you want that would make you happy, joyful, and holy, those three got to come together, I will do for you. Ladies, right? So here's what happens. I'm going to give you a little backwards way of addressing this, okay? I will go to a woman and I'll say, would you like for a man to be head over you and for you to submit to him? The answer would be for most women, no, so help me God. Now, some Christian women understand this and they say yes. Here's what I say to them. Let's take all the categories off the table, start fresh. Wife, what if I could tell you, you can have a husband whose sole objective in life is to die to himself for your joy, happiness, and holiness. He will forgo all of his hobbies. He will forgo anything that stands between your oneness as friends, as being on mission for God, we'll see, as lovers and as making a family. He will do everything that is for your benefit. His ultimate goal in life is going to be your holiness, your sanctification. So one day when you stand before God, he'll be able to say, my wife is more holy, happy, and joyful because she was my wife. Now, ladies, would you like that? Right? Can I get an amen from the women in this room? Who, right? Right? Here's the deal. If you like that, then you love headship, okay? If you like that, then you love submission. So at the, we usually think about this oppressively. Who's at the bottom of the chart, right? The woman. Who's at the top? God. Who's getting the benefit of all of the sacrifice? The woman. Do you understand that? Everybody is sacrificing ultimately for her benefit. It's amazing. And so like in this world, some of us step back and we say, well, that's not what's been modeled for me. And that is so sad. And this is a sermon where I want to call men to die. I want to call us to get over ourselves and get over anything that stands in the way of helping our wives 
feel and experience love, joy, and holiness because of their relationship with us, right? Now, are you gonna get there today? No, but you know what you can do one year from now? You can look back and say, I'm closer than I was a year ago. And I want, to, I want us to begin that trajectory if we have not begun it. This is not a sermon about women's submit. This is a sermon about women allow your husbands to love you and die for you and give himself for you. In that context, now we can talk about submission. You get it? So now we can actually read the verse that everybody gets all up in arms about. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be there for a couple minutes. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 5, at the very end of the chapter, Paul summarizes everything that he has to say on submission, headship, etc. He says this, Let each one of you love his wife. Does he mean oppressively? No, he means you give everything you have for this woman. You fight for her. You give everything for her joy, happiness, and holiness. That's what love means. So um, usually the women, right, do you want to be loved by your husband? And they always say yes. So if you want to be truly loved and you want headship and submission to exist in your home, it's going to be um, in such a way that there is tons of sacrifice. Looks at the women, summarizes all of this, and it says this, wives, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So that as your husband gives himself, or let me put it more realistically, learns how to give himself to you and learns how to die and learns how to serve, honor that. Honor it. Honor it. Respect it. It's not going to be perfect. It will never be perfect. He will always, always sinfully lead you. But it can get a little more holy. He can learn to do it a little bit better. And he may not be as perfect as you want, but we step back and we say, wives, respect the effort, even if it's just a little bit. And there's this interesting thing that happens in a dude. When we feel disrespected, what do we do? We either pull away or we get oppressive. It's really pathetic, but that's our nature, okay? It's our sin nature in us. There's something about respect that makes a man come alive, makes a man come alive. And again, we're gonna talk about the dudes here to the ladies. I would just give you one huge encouragement. In your posture, in your attitude, in your mind, in your words, if you can communicate a deep respect for your husband, he will come alive and it will propel him to sacrifice and give himself to you more and more and more. It's when a husband feels disrespected or neglected that he pulls away or he becomes oppressive, which are both of our sinful faults. Now, it's not your fault if he does that. I'm just saying these are ways that you can, quote, help him be the man that God has made him to be. Now, it goes on, it says, uh, Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife. See, this word comes up again. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, is himself its savior. Already, he's communicating that wives, he's gonna be your head, but here's what head means. You know how Jesus was the head of the church and gave himself up and died? Don't confuse head with oppression. Okay, because that's what we're all tempted to do. If you're reading oppression or authoritarian control in this, you're misunderstanding the model of headship given to the man by Jesus. Okay, you got that? It is very easy to receive sacrificial love and leadership. It's very easy. It's very hard to receive oppressive love and leadership. But he's saying this. Wives, the goal is that your husbands are going to be sacrificial. Let him do that. Let him do it. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Um, if the husband asks you to sin or to do something you're not comfortable with, 
Is that something you need to submit? Say no, please. No. Here's the mantra that you, you want a husband to have. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And if I'm not following Christ and I'm asking you to sin or to be uncomfortable or to violate your conscience in any way, don't follow me. I'm not, this, this is not a, a statement that's intending women to function as slaves. In fact, when this was written, this wasn't controversial. Paul had no intentions of mixing up the boat. Let's go to the next one and let's read what's actually controversial about this text, which is to the men, which in this culture, right, what happens? The men are prone to oppressiveness. Is that God's will for any man to be that way or a woman to live under that? No, God was actually calling the men out of their passivity and oppression in this text. This right here, this is what's controversial. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But the government says she's my property. I don't care what the government says to you. Here's what God says. She is made in the image of God, infinitely valuable, and you exist to serve her, to make her come alive, to pursue her joy, happiness, and holiness. So here's the deal, dudes. Die to yourself. I don't care what the government does. I don't care how they define her. I don't care what culture says to you. Here's the deal. Your job is to present her before me, radiant and beautiful and blameless. It is to die for her and to love her. And he goes on, he says this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Guys, some of you love your bodies. Let me tell you, right? Love your wife more than that. And then this is my favorite line in all of the discussion on roles and gender and et cetera. It says this, he who loves his wife loves himself. So you want to be the happiest that you could possibly be, go play with your hobbies and neglect your family. No, that's not it. Uh, grow apart in oneness in your friendship and your mission. Is that it? No. If you want long-term to be the happiest you could possibly be, love your wife like you would love yourself. Give your absolute best to her. Pursue that relationship. Deepen that friendship. Be on mission with her. Because here's what happens as you do that. Your joy is maximized. God's glory and image and likeness is projected for the world to see. It's beautiful. Now what happens when a husband and a wife get married and they don't agree on these roles? Explosions. Explosions. And this is where I would encourage you guys strongly to get on the same page about these. Let's move on. Number three. Lovers, do we regularly enjoy one another sexually? Last week was a very, we'll call it intense sermon on the nature of sexuality. And so if you want more on this subject, I want to just draw you back to that message. But here's the point, that there is something about the sexual relationship that reenacts the gospel, your marriage um, co covenant and commitment, and that God's word actually says that this is not supposed to stop if, it if you have the ability to do it. Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And finally, number four, you grow in your oneness as family. Is our physical and spiritual family Growing in obedience to God's first command. So what? I want to move on here. 
All of this comes together because God ordained marriage, but he didn't exactly tell um, the Old Testament people of God all the final reason of why he made marriage. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, it says this, and finally you are revealed a mystery that was hidden from generations. And here's the mystery. The mystery is profound, the mystery of marriage, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why is it of utmost importance for our church, for our singles, for our marriage, for our kids to pursue the oneness of every marriage? Because every marriage is projecting the image and the likeness of God. Do you see that? And so why do you go to counseling if things aren't okay? Why do you get help? Why do you pursue your spouse? Why do you set up dates? Why do you do this? Because we are so purposeful and intent about pursuing oneness as friends, gardeners, lovers, and family. Now, unfortunately, sin has devastated marriage. Turn with me to Genesis chapter three. Start reading in verse six. As you get there, you can find it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And we're gonna watch now as they sin. It's called the fall where sin is finally entering into humanity and it corrupts this marriage from the inside out. I wanna show you three ways of corruption. Number one is sexual brokenness. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And what the text is clearly communicating is that the sexual relationship, the ability to have no shame with one another in nudity is now a very shameful act. Sin has made its way into the sexual relationship and every married couple uh, has had challenges at one point or another, some much more than others, and sexuality is not functioning the way God has intended it to function. So we have to fight for it and learn it and redeem it. But it goes on to spiritual separation. Verse eight, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so here's what happens. The man and the wife, here's what your tendency is. Your trajectory, if you don't fight, is to walk away from God, to hide from God, to pursue simply your happiness and not their holiness, right? This is your tendency. So if you're going to be a marriage that actually grows in your relationship with God, you will need to fight for it. As soon as you get lax on this, what happens? God's, you start walking away. You start serving less. The mission becomes less important, and you become obsessed with each other or work or your busyness or your schedules. And then finally, number three is, this is the understatement of the century, relational tension. And he said, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault. It's interesting. His first words about her was a love poem, right? Right after the fall, first words about her were what? Complaining. Isn't that amazing? From love poems to complaining, and this is what happens. Sin just corrupts us relationally. We have seen in the fall, I want to show this to you in Genesis 3.16. 
God cursed the man and the woman. And this is what he says to the woman. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Uh, the same word desire is used in chapter four, verse seven, and it's describing a tiger or lion or predator who is crouching and is ready to pounce on its prey, okay? And what happened now because of sin is that there's two compulsions, one in the man and one in the woman in marriage. And the feminine compulsion now is not to help or nurture, it is to devour and consume. I want you to catch this. And the masculine compulsion is no longer to serve and to sacrifice and take leadership, right? The masculine compulsion is to oppress, okay? And so here's what happens. God says, look, sin is absolutely going to corrupt you guys. Here's what you need to know in every marriage. Here are the tendencies. You, woman, will resist being his helper. You will resist the idea of submission and you will seek to desire, to nag, to control, to complain. Husband, you will cease to love your wife and to sacrifice and lead and you will oppress and you will tell her to obey you and you will become abusive. And these are the extremes. And this is why we need marital counseling because all of these impulses are in every one of us. Isn't it interesting that God steps back and says, yeah, that oppression for men, that's sin. Yeah, that controlling nature of women, that's sin. And in a marriage, what life will come? What friendship, what love, what, what mission will come when two people are at such odds, when one person is trying to oppress and the other person is trying to devour? Doesn't that describe a lot of the marriages you know? For some of you, your parents, your grandparents, consuming and devouring and oppressing? That's so sad. That does not image the beautiful character and likeness of God. And God calls us to something bigger and better. And so Christians, we call it what it is. We step back and we say, men, we're either passive or oppressive. And we say, women, we're either controlling or capitulating in all sides of the spectrum. We all need to die to that. And we need to be able to call it and say, yes, this is my tendency. And I'm not offended that the Bible calls out in me what I already know is inside of me. And instead of submitting to that, I'm going to look at it, I'm going to confess it, I'm going to own it, and I will pursue and begin the trajectory of me as a man of loving sacrifice, uh, as a woman of um, helping and nurturing and submission. We'll go on, we look at number two, which is adultery. I don't know if you know this, God hates adultery. And by adultery in scripture, he does not mean pornography, although those are all remnants of adultery. What he actually means is the actual sexual relationship of another man or another woman that's not your spouse. Um, Hebrews 13, 4 says this, um, marriage should be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed, God's very protective of sexuality in the context of marriage, very protective. He says this should be undefiled. And then here's what he says to people who defile these. He says, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, rather than this being a sermon where I just say, God's going to judge you, I want to just actually tell you why he's so protective of this. Because when you commit adultery, you are projecting a complete lie about God's nature and character. You were saying that God is not loyal or faithful. And let me tell you this, there's not one ounce, there's not one ounce of a lack of loyalty or faithfulness in God. He is eternally faithful and sacrificial and loving. Uh, and so when we do this, we mar his image. And then somebody will say, but I didn't intend to mar his image. And he will say, I don't care because you did. He is so protective of this. And he's warning us and saying, build the loving relationship with your wife. Build a sexual relationship with your wife and a friendship all based in mission. Grow your family because this is so destructive. Divorce and remarriage. Um, 
people have made this very difficult, and I want to I wanna bring you into some simple categories, and I'm going to make a deal with you. What I'm going to do is um, I'm going to write you guys another long Q&A session. I'm almost done with the one from last week, so you'll get this week probably two extensive documents of Q&As. If you look in the back of your notes, you'll see some fun, controversial questions. If you're not on our Friday notes, sign up um, for them. Uh, go to the Connect Desk so you can actually get that. Um, but I want to give you a brief overview of the two reasons the Bible gives for why you can get divorced, okay? Um, and they're very simple. And the first one is adultery. If you look at Matthew 19, verse 3, you can turn there. <clears throat> it says this, The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, what you don't know, unless you're really fluent in first century Jewish history, is that there is two competing ideas um, of divorce. One is from a rabbi named Shammai, and he was really, really conservative and said, No, adultery is the only reason you can get divorced. There's another rabbi, his name is Hillel, and he would say, you can get divorced for any cause. And so the people were divorcing their wives for any cause who were listening to Hillel, so the Jewish leaders go up to Jesus to trap him. So they say, basically, can, can we get divorced for any cause? They're referencing this other guy, uh, Hillel. Jesus said, we need to notice his answer. He actually doesn't give an answer. Here's what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Does Jesus recognize that God made gender and distinctions? Yes. And then verse 5, it says, therefore, no, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become, say with me, one flesh, a cod. So they're no longer two, but one flesh, a cod. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So they want to know, hey, when can we get divorced? He doesn't even answer. Isn't that frustrating? So they go on. Okay. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Which he did, Deuteronomy 24. And here's what he says. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So um, as Christians, we have to be able to call sin, sin, and look at it and deal with it. That's just it right? And so at the end of the day, Jesus's overarching, overwhelming sweep of divorce is simple. Divorce happens because of one or two things. Either number one, somebody is unforgiving, or number two, somebody's heart is hard. Either one. One of those is playing itself out. And at the end of the day, um, what he says is this. Um, it was not supposed to be this way. In fact, the Old Testament says God hates divorce. He's very passionate about it. And at the end of the day, if the only exception is this, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So if you just step back and you say, hey, this, the one reason so far, there's another one coming up, that God says you can get divorced is in the case of adultery. And there's something so powerful about adultery that it severs and it breaks the covenant. It just destroys it. And at this point, though, if somebody is in this circumstance, does this mean you necessarily have to get a divorce? The answer is no. Because if there's repentance and there's no hardness of heart, if two people are willing to work at it, they can start putting the pieces back together, although it is gut-wrenching and painful and difficult. But what would possibly motivate a Christian to forgive someone who cheats on them? Because we step back and say, my greatest desire in this marriage is to image God who is faithful despite my faithlessness. 
This beautiful picture of Hosea and Gomer pictures God's relationship with Israel, who was an adulterous wife and kept running away from him and running away from him. And what did God do, even though she committed adultery and had children from these adulterous relationships? He ran after her, he loved her, and he took her home because that's what God's character does. But God steps back and says, if there's going to be a divorce, it's going to be because somebody has a hard heart or unforgiveness. Somebody. It might not be both. It might just be one. But somebody. The second reason is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. And I'll summarize it for you. It goes like this. Um, you may find yourself married to a non-Christian. <clears throat> and that non-Christian may not like who you become in Christ. Because Jesus has a way of transforming us, right? And so they may be with you. And uh, they may say, you know what? This is too much. I'm done with this. And so these Christians, usually it was women, but it could apply to men, um, would step back and say, well, what do I do? Can I get remarried? Am I bound by this covenant? And Paul just steps in and he says, look, if your unbelieving spouse has left you, you're free. Don't worry about it. You can remarry. You're fine. Everything is okay. And they were stepping back and saying, oh, thank God, because I didn't know what to do because I felt uh, it, was, it was incredibly stressful. And he steps back and says, don't, if you're married to an unbeliever, do not leave them. Whatever you do, do not leave them. But if they choose to leave you, then you're free. And at the end of the day, we step back and we say this. There are two reasons that God gives for divorce. Number one is adultery. And number two is if an unbelieving spouse willingly leaves and won't be reconciled. Now, you're automatically, and these are the best questions. What if I'm married to an, a drug abuser, uh, somebody who abuses myself or my kids physically? And there are so many questions, and I'm going to write them out. I'm going to write you some answers so you can think about it. It'll be on the email, and I would love for you to ponder them and uh, really think deeply about them. But as far as the Bible reveals to us, these are the two exceptions for divorce. Um, and even under these circumstances, they're not necessary. But here's the bigger question. Why does God hate divorce so much? I mean, that's what he says. He says he hates it. He hates it because it projects a lie about who he is. And God is obsessed with projecting or protecting his image, his likeness. We get to gay marriage and polygamous marriage. And um, unfortunately, we have a reputation of being against gay marriage because many um, Christians hate homosexuals. Again, if that's your issue, your issues go way deeper than this sermon can ever go into. Um, I want to tell you why, as a Christian, I do not support polygamous marriage, gay marriage, or any other expression of marriage outside of a man and a woman in a covenant for life. Um, very simply, because God is the one who has the authority to define it. That's it. And I am not excited about going up to what God has defined and redefining it and then having to stand before him. It just doesn't pump me up, okay? So Rick Warren is a pastor of a big, large church, and he was asked on Piers Morgan um, why he does not approve of the idea of gay marriage or any other redefinition of marriage. And his answer was not because we don't like homosexuals. It has nothing to do with that. Actually, it has nothing to do with that. He says this, I fear the disapproval of God more than I fear your disapproval, peers, or the disapproval of society. So the issue is so simple for the Christian. It is not because we're against anybody. You may not approve of a lifestyle. The Bible may not approve of a lifestyle. At the core, here's why I am against any redefinition of marriage because God is the one who has the authority to define it and all of us will stand accountable before him as protecting that definition and living that definition out in our own lives. That's it. That's totally it. 
That's what it comes down to. And I am not in the mood to stand before God and redefine what he has so clearly defined. We're gonna close with three um, points for you from how does Jesus heal or redeem broken marriages. Here's the first one. I wanna just plead with you, come to Jesus. Trust in Christ. If you um, have never trusted in Christ, here's the simple reality. You will never project the image of God in your marriage the way that God has intended you to. You will never do it. Um, The friendship he's intended you to have, which is also a spiritual oneness and friendship, will never exist in the way God has intended. Um, That's number one. Number two, I would encourage you to be culturally subversive and repent of all the ways that you've bought into the lies of what men and women are in this culture. I would encourage you to resist it and to look to the word of God and pursue to live out what biblical masculinity and femininity is according to God's word. Uh, There's too much at stake, most important of which is the image of God being displayed for us to ignore what God says. Now, it's possible um, and probable that some of you are working really hard through this, and my sermons have just begun a long conversation in your mind. And I want to encourage you to dig deep, 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 deep down into the Word of God to figure out what God says. Because the image and likeness of God being portrayed and displayed is at stake in our conclusions on this manner. And finally, number three, I just want to encourage married couples um, grow in your oneness. And the more one you become as friends, as missionaries, gardeners, as lovers, and as family, you will experience the joy and unity that God has with himself. And you will project God's image and likeness. I look forward to writing out the answers for you guys um, on the questions in the back. And so hopefully that'll be um, something that will help you process really well together. Let's pray and close. Lord, I um, am very just well aware of the heaviness of all of these subjects, the controversy. Um, God, I pray that um, anything that is not consistent with your word, um, that you would either help us or me see what is most clear and true. All of us who are believers in Jesus, we want to image your likeness and your character as much as possible. God, for all of us men who are broken and sinners, who either waver from oppression to passivity or somewhere on this sin spectrum, God, I just pray you would help us, that you would convict us. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is in us and he is a helper. Lord, for all the ladies in this room who um, waver between controlling and capitulating, God, would you give each of them a strong, dignified ability to see who you are through your word and to respect their husbands. Lord, I pray that the um, roles we play would not be tainted with sin any more than it needs, but that husbands would love like Christ loves the church. God, I'm so excited to see how you continually change us and transform us. So would you do a work in us that we honestly don't have the authority or power to do? Would you change our hearts from the inside out and make us more and more into the image of Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.